Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. Right now, Trump and others are setting up like an economy or your life choice in their rhetoric, right? Is the cure worse than the disease? And it is exactly the opposite. Like, you got to get the disease under control to get the economy back up and running. Hello, welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias. Uh, I'm here with, with Ezra Klein today. We are changing up our Weeds lineup a little bit uh, in light of the public health emergency. Uh, we're going to do today um, conversation, me and Ezra, talking about you know issues that are kind of happening in the coronavirus world. And I think going to stick with that format uh, for a little bit. We don't really know on how Fridays. long we're going to need to. Uh, but it's Yeah, it's on Fridays. Um Always, always good to talk to Ezra, though. So I'm glad that this is bringing us, bringing us back together. Uh, Physical distancing, wise. social connection. Exactly. That's that's what it's about. Um, so this morning we got the first hard economic data of the coronavirus era. It's initial unemployment claims um, from last week. Uh, it's important to get exact dates right because events are moving so quick here. So on Thursday, we found out what had happened on the week that ended March 21st. And it was bad. Uh, about 3.3 million new unemployment insurance claims. That is somewhere between four and three times more than the worst week ever on record, depending on how you want to think about seasonal adjustment factors. Um, so it's not unprecedented for there to be a lot of unemployment in the United States, but it is completely unprecedented for unemployment to arrive with this velocity that we've seen this week. And it's interesting because the financial market freakout uh, was days ago and seems to have ameliorated this week. But that just goes to show like things are getting really bad out there. I don't know how to communicate how bad those numbers are if you're not used to watching unemployment claims. I mean, we we both covered the financial crisis, which was supposed to be our generation's once-in-a-lifetime economic flood. And now we have this unemployment claims number that wipes out the financial crisis on a chart. You can't even tell how bad the financial crisis was when you, when you chart it now, um, at least on this metric. I spoke to Mark Zandi a couple of days ago. He's Moody's chief economist. So he's got tons of economic survey data, uh, data from businesses. They see a lot of what is coming pretty early. And what he 
explained was really bad sounding at this point and it is not coming from him but at this point we are looking at a consensus forecast if you look at the major forecasters of something like an 18 percent annualized drop in gdp in quarter two uh, the way Zandi put it is that you're going to have these four waves of economic pain. The first wave is this incredibly sudden stop in the economy, which is something we're in right now as people shelter in place, businesses close, uh, people just stop doing economic activity. Social distancing is economic distancing. Then he was saying you're going to get this mass wave of unemployment. We're beginning to see that now. Then we're going to have, and we're probably having this even as we speak, this huge wealth effect, right? Particularly if you're near retirement, people are watching a lot of their retirement savings get wiped out. A lot of those people sold out of the market. So that will last for some time. People who have been saving to retire in a certain way, or maybe they've already retired and we're going to replace their car this year or move to a different home or move from wherever they live to Florida. Like All that is going to stop. And for some time, you're going to see a big spending drag among this group of people. And then, and and this is a big deal, and it will come more slowly, is a sharp cut in business investment. So you had a lot of businesses that either were going to or already had plans to expand this year, maybe publications that were going to open up a new, you know, like they were going to launch a new magazine or something. Um, yep. Businesses are going to move to a better office space. Like all that stuff is either on hold or it is canceled or those very same businesses are going to go into cut mode. And so that is just going to be wave after wave of economic hit here. And a lot of that was going to depend on how this early data looked, right? When you think about something like that business investment decisions, those businesses aren't seeing what their Q4 sales will be like right now. So what they're looking at is, well, what is happening to unemployment? What is happening to GDP? And as this number comes in, they are moving into catastrophe planning scenario, and they'll begin to make cuts in that way in advance because they need to be prepared for Q4 or Q3 or Q2 to be a disaster. But that means by making those cuts, it will make Q3, Q2, Q4, even worse. So we're, we are entering into a really scary economic period. And I think something that, you know, it's alarms me personally, because we work in the media, but that everybody should see as a kind of warning sign here is um, Peter Kafka did a piece for, for Vox Recode about uh, the plunge in advertising revenue that Twitter is seeing in the month of March. Uh, even though engagement on Twitter is way, way up, revenue is way, way down. BuzzFeed announced across the board salary cuts. Um, I don't have any proprietary Vox Media information to share about this, except to say that um, as far as I know, the entire world of selling advertising is impacted by this same kind of thing. And what's striking about that is that the media business is not being crippled by coronavirus in the way that the restaurant business is. I mean, it's a logistical hassle to need to record our podcast this way or to have everybody working from home and doing meetings on Zoom. But like we are publishing stuff and people are reading it. Right. There's um, actually an incredible level of audience for news, but companies are anticipating that customers won't be there. So they are not spending on marketing for things. Right. And that is where you start to see secondary and tertiary consequences of people losing their jobs. Because if if you work in a bar and the bar closes down and now you don't have a job, you you have no income, so you can't buy anything, even the things that still are for sale. Uh, and then that's lost income for other people. And it's very, I don't want to say it's more worrisome than the the virus itself, but it's a it becomes a problem that is larger in scope 
than the question of whose work is directly impacted by this virus. And, and we'll take on different dimensions. So this is somewhere where I think actually, Matt, you and I have some different views on it. But I want to talk a bit about what kind of recession we're entering into, because that'll help set up our discussion, too, of what kinds of economic support and stimulus and backstopping we need. So as I've been talking to economists about this, one thing is that I think a lot of us who've covered or paid attention to economics for, let's call it the last 10, 15 years, it's very easy to fall into a metaphor or a comparison to the financial crisis. But one thing about the financial crisis was that the real economy was pretty unchanged. When you would talk to economists back then, they would always make the point that, look, we don't have fewer people, we don't have fewer factories, machines, land, knowledge, none of it. What we have is a panic in financial markets that is making economic actors make decisions to cut workers or to stop spending or whatever it might have been. And so what you have this is, is an output gap, right? There is an amount the economy could produce, but it is not producing that much. So you want to fill that output gap, that demand gap with money. You are going to have a very big output gap here, a very big demand gap. You're going to have to fill some of that with money. And, and they're beginning to think about how to do that and pass legislation to do that. But there is something really different, which is that you are having a change in the real economy. People cannot supply, at least for right now, labor in the way they normally can. They can't go to the factory. They can't use the machine. They can't use the land. They can't use some of the knowledge. And like we are passing policies not just to get people back to work, but to make it possible for them to not work for a period of time, which is a super different goal for economic policy. Tyler Cowen, um, the economist at George Mason University, had this good line where he said, what we're trying to do right now is lower output and then raise it with perfect timing. And nobody has taught us how to do that. And so what's happening in the economic policy space is this weird mixture of trying to figure out how to support people to do less economically and then create the capacity for a very rapid bounce back of economic activity. And as hard as the financial crisis was to manage and the stimulus was to manage and as much as people undershot or made mistakes, it was actually a much simpler problem than the one we're facing now. Like if that was a financial crisis and a recession, um, it's funny, I could see Matt on video and he's like kind of like moving his head back and forth. So, so you'll argue with me here, which I think is good. But if that was a financial crisis and a recession, this is more like a mixture of potentially a financial crisis, definitely a terrible recession, but like a natural disaster and a war. Like it has a lot of economic mobilization and demobilization and things lying fallow effects that are are, are going to be hard to work our way through. Yeah. So this is what's interesting to me about it, right? Is if you if you read a, you know, intro economics textbook, uh, they will show you, okay, there's the demand shock and there's the supply shock. And these are different kinds of problems. And in either problem, output goes down, right? So you you make less stuff when there's a financial crisis for all, all the reasons you outlined. Uh, but you also make less stuff if like a hurricane flattens your city uh, because, you know, everything is kind of destroyed. Uh, but where there's supposed to be a difference is on the prices, right? So in a, in a supply shock, prices are supposed to go up because you have shortages of things, in essence. And we do see shortages, obviously, in some kind of select sectors. Uh, there was a time when it was hard to get hand sanitizer. Uh, there's particular shortages of medical equipment. But the general price level is plummeting in the economy right now. A lot of that's driven by commodity prices, oil, uh, you know, basic foodstuffs, uh, because there's there's linkages through the ethanol market, things like that. Uh, but stores that aren't closed, right, like Home Depot uh, in my neighborhood is reducing the number of hours that it's open 
which is not because of the virus. The, the virus doesn't make it impossible to stay open past 6 p.m. Uh, they just, you know, don't anticipate sales coming through, uh, you know, which is reasonable enough in, in its way. And, and a lot of people, restaurant people I know who own restaurants are scrambling to try to reconfigure as delivery businesses. And, you know, it's not what they're set up to do. It's not like the best way to run a restaurant. But also, there just aren't that many customers, you know, like people, uh, people don't want to get as many takeout meals as they as they might have otherwise. And you see in the bond market, right, these incredibly low interest rates facing the federal government. And so I feel like it is both true that we are facing this incredibly complicated problem that all the smartest economists I know have really smart things to say about how complicated and hard this hard problem is. Uh, but I feel like they are scanting the extent to which we are not actually solving the like simple problem, which, you know, it, it, it recollects. They would say like, ah, but the Great Recession, that was a simple problem, uh, which like it was conceptually. But you look at like what actually happened in the Great Recession, and it's we had elevated unemployment for years because the federal government did not shovel enough money out the door. And we are once again, as far as I can tell, not shoveling enough money out the door. And then we're telling ourselves that like maybe that's okay or forgivable because we have this other much harder problem to deal with. But it just seems to me that like that, that that's like an unhelpful way uh, to to think about it. Like we had this this dispute uh, initially between Democrats and Republicans. I'm like, should we cut payroll taxes or should we just send money to everybody? But like they could have done both of those things. Like, what would the harm have been? Let me cut argument this up a little bit, because I don't think people are saying that it excuses not solving the demand problem. What I think the question is, is it raises uh, an issue of what else do you have to do? And this will probably lead us into a discussion of the stimulus um, or economic support, whatever you want to call it. But one thing going on here, for instance, is um, there is a huge question of whether or not we are going to face a mass wave of business failures, right? As rest, right. like more than 50% of small businesses in this country cannot go more than a month or two without uh, sales. So it's not like they can just survive through this. And so in a way that you could just generate a ton of demand really quickly if you had been willing to do it during the financial crisis just by giving people huge amounts of money uh right now it will be hard to do that because like like my like a physical therapist office is not open my gym isn't open the restaurants i go to some of them are trying to do delivery but delivery is a replacement in many cases for cooking at home not for going to see your friends which is like a large part of what restaurants do or like a special date night and so there is a question beyond the how much money should we spend on cash transfers of, for instance, there's been a fight between Democrats and Republicans over how much oversight do you want to put on business loans right now? And in a world where what you want to do is almost freeze the economy in place, you don't want to make it really hard to get these loans because the more you create a, a big group of like inspector generals and like a board that you have to go to apply to, and these people are worried about something going wrong, not how much goes right. Like if you want to just shovel money to businesses, you don't want to make it hard for them to get that money. Um, on the other hand, if you're sort of thinking about 2008 and you have like the moral hazard and like these corporations who are terrible, they got bailed out, but the workers didn't get bailed out, then you want to be very careful um, with who is getting the money and make sure not to repeat what are seen as, uh, in many quarters, these mistakes. And I do think that is still there. So I think one reason people are emphasizing it isn't because 
it should make you want to like lower the temperature or lower the intensity of the direct cash transfers or demand side. But like for for me, for instance, I disagree with a lot of people on the left right now. Like I would put more money into loans and have somewhat less concern over the fact that like some corporations I don't like will get them because I want to make sure the loans go out and the businesses survive because I don't think there's a moral hazard problem right now. I don't think corporations are to blame for coronavirus ripping through the world. Um, on the other hand, like it's hard. You don't want taxpayers on the hook for businesses that are going to fail anyway. And then we have to. So it's hard, um, which maybe brings us to the to the big package being passed. But I, I just want to like separate the idea that it's not an excuse for not doing more. It's a question of trying to understand what do we have to do now that we didn't have to do then. Right. So it definitely has relaxed members of Congress's concerns about certain bugaboos, right? So I would say like the biggest thing in this stimulus package is a sort of huge increase in unemployment insurance. That includes an extension of the duration of benefits, which is common in recession situations, but it also they've made the benefits more generous. So for a four-month period, there's going to be an extra $600 per week uh, of UI benefits for anyone who uh, qualifies for it, which is a a, a huge um, boost to lower-wage workers who, who've been laid off. And there's also been an expansion of who is eligible to cover many more people from the gig economy. And also, they've created a mechanism whereby your employer can furlough you, which is to say stop paying you, uh, but keep you on the health insurance, and you can still collect unemployment insurance benefits. And so that's all stuff that in ordinary times, a lot of politicians, especially Republicans, would be very wary of, because uh, you're essentially paying people not to work, which I think Republicans have decided is acceptable in these circumstances, that we don't necessarily want every laid-off restaurant worker to like go get a new job two weeks from now. We want them to chill, and then like hopefully they'll come back to work in two or three months. Uh, then conversely, you know, for, for Democrats, for everybody, right, it's gotten them to do this giant people are using different words for it. But basically, the Fed is going to hand out an incredible quantity of subsidized loans to businesses that follow some, I think, light conditions in terms of not using the money to do stock buybacks and retaining at least 90% of their workforce. And there's a lot of yelling on the left about whether that's enough conditionality and whether, you know, the enforceability is sort of high enough. Uh, classically on the right, I think you would say this is like the exact thing you never want to do in the economy. You're snapping the bonds of creative destruction. Uh, but again, there's a sense that it's like, well, it's nobody's fault that this is happening and we're just going to sort of like go back right in a couple months. So it's fine. We can we can tide everybody over. Um, the other thing that's in there is a small business lending fund, uh, which to my eyes, it's more generous than the than the fund for big companies, uh, because you're going to get loans that in many cases are really gifts. Uh, as long as you don't fire your workers, you don't really need to pay the money back. Uh, so they're sort of grants. Uh, but it's also Wait, a, explain explain that more for a minute, because I don't think that's clear. OK, what do you mean? They're loans that you don't have to pay back. Uh, well, they are they are non recourse loans. Um, which means so the big companies are going to get these discount loans from the Fed, but they need to put up collateral to get them. Uh, so basically, you they have to pay the back or they're going to incur financial losses. The small business loans don't require collateral. So you can just kind of walk away from them. 
And, you know, it's like you got free money. I don't think there's necessarily no penalty for walking away from them because there's always a question about the impact on your creditworthiness going forward. On the other hand, if you have to explain to a bank, like, you remember that coronavirus thing? I don't know exactly what's going to happen. We don't have a ton of experience with it. Uh, But I would say they are closer to grants being characterized as loans than they are to loans. Um, But then by the same token, they are not... The Fed's ability to lend money to big companies under this program is going to be essentially unlimited. There's some notional uh, quantitative limits to it, but they can take this treasury money and like leverage it 10 to 1 or 20 to 1. There's a lot of funny business that they can pull, frankly, uh, whereas the small business is a finite pool of money. And so... uh, we're going to have to see how far that goes in a sort of practical sense, right? It's But it's much more generous, but there's there's less of it. Uh, then the last thing you have is, well, no, you have a, a special program for the airline industry, which is combines the features of both the small... It's generous, uh, like the small business program in its terms, uh, but also it's just all the money that they need. I don't really know why the airlines are like Congress's special favorite children, because uh, if anyone actually is at fault here, I would say... I mean, it's not that the airlines are responsible <laughs> for this problem, but the airline industry has been like notoriously unprofitable, and they just spent the last several years like claiming on investor calls, like, we've solved all these problems. Like, we don't need a cash buffer for the next recession, and then it turns out, actually, you do. Uh, then last, there's a cash grants to um, households, right? This is the uh, $1,200 check that middle class and, and low-income families will be getting, which has attracted a lot of attention, but I think it's not that much money in the final scheme of things. And then there's some money going to state and local governments, but not that much. I want to say before we move on from that, that uh, it begins to phase out for single family, for for single earners of above $75,000. And I think it's for married couples at twice that, right? At one hundred fifty. dollars um, So just... For people listening, if they're looking to get it, um, and then it phases out something like, uh, I forget, it's like five bucks for every hundred dollars you make or something. Yeah, and then a child is worth 500% of a real person, no, 40%. I, I don't know where they came up with those numbers or what any of that is is based on exactly. What I would say is that that is way too small. Just like to our earlier conversation about demand, like whatever you think about this, I I don't think it's crazy to target it. It's not how I would have targeted it, but I don't think it's crazy. I think you would have wanted to have more regional variation in targeting, but it's just going to have to be much bigger than this and and much more renewable. I mean, unemployment insurance and the fact that it's going to be as generous as is, that's really going to help. But you're going to have a lot of people for one reason or another don't quite qualify. Again, they expanded unemployment insurance here. It can help gig workers and other things. But we're just going to need a lot more economic support for people during this. And something like the Bennett Booker um, Brown bill that would have been up to like $18,000 a year for a low-income family of four, I just think was a much better way to go here. So I think one place people are correctly sort of angry is that this is, I don't want to say it's very generous to businesses. It it can be looked at that way, but I think it is like, it is appropriately concerned about what is going to happen to businesses. Whereas I think the cash grants is getting a little bit too much rhetorical power out of being a cash grant and its actual generosity level compared to what a lot of families are about to go through is too small. Well, and I also just think it's a confused policy trajectory, right? So this sort of 
the origin of this policy was in Claudia Somm's proposal to create an automatic fiscal stabilizer, uh, which would consist of cash grants, universal cash grants to all households. And the reason it was universal in her plan, as opposed to targeted, is just that she was looking for a program that would have a high level of automaticity and a high level of political legitimacy. Again, with the theory being you would enact this in a non-crisis situation, you would just say like, look, so everybody knows the plan is next time the unemployment rate goes up, everybody's going to get money and money's going to keep going out until the unemployment rate gets low again. And I think that would have been a very good idea. But Congress obviously didn't do that. Then this very acute crisis fell on us. And Congress started running around like, what should we do? What should we do? What should we do? Uh, There was immediately a lot of buzz about the cash transfers idea. But in the context of a short-term emergency, it starts competing with all these other priorities, right? Like the airline industry might evaporate tomorrow. Um, There's about to be 3 million newly unemployed people, and they really need a lot more help than a kind of average person does. So then they whittled the cash grants down to the point where it's not that much money, fundamentally, which means it doesn't deliver its purpose of like being this incredible fiscal policy lever that like powers the economy forward, right? And if you had separated it out conceptually, right, this was, they call this their their phase three bill. And if you had thought of this in terms of stages, right, there was some initial uh, legislation that was about the immediate costs, uh, then this bill addresses unemployment and potential business failures. And then really, they should do a whole separate thing, which is like, how do we stimulate economic activity? Because unemployment insurance is basically, I mean, that's social safety net, right? That's to help people who've fallen on misfortune. Economic stimulus is about like trying to get demand going for everybody. And then the whole other thing they have to address is state and local governments who are going to be enacting incredible austerity unless there's sort of further action here. Congress, unfortunately, has its own its own logic and um, has decided to go out of session for a month now, even though Like, it's weird. If you ask members of Congress, it's not like any of them are saying we've solved all problems in America and there's nothing more to do. It's just that the idea of the recess had, like, so much momentum that, like, to stop that freight train, which is just, like, conceptually impossible, I think, to the members. Well, also, they don't want to infect each other, but they also have not created remote voting. The whole thing is crazy. Part of the problem is that they can't figure out how they have not figured out a good way to just be distributed back to their home communities and still do the work of Congress. And I recognize like there are some difficulties with it, but they are not insurmountable in a time of emergency. And so I get like why they don't want to sit there like breathing the same air as like Rand Paul at this point. But it it is wild. Um, I do want to talk about one of the bigger dynamics here. And I think this goes to the Claudia Somm proposal to mention to this, which is One thing that is different here than 2008 is that you're getting a lot of Democratic cooperation. It's not that they did not have their own ideas, but unlike the three Republicans who voted for the stimulus bill in 2009, I guess it was, or the many Democrats who carried the TARP bill over the finish line when Bush was still president in 2008, Democrats, as the opposition party dealing with the president they absolutely loathe, were like they they gave this thing the votes to pass more than enough of them. Like they were very engaged in it. What they wanted was policy compromise. They wanted their policies in it. 
And I think one interesting question here is, will the coronavirus crisis have a very different dynamic to it six months from now than the financial crisis did, where you had even there at least some initial cooperation from Republicans, but particularly as it became Barack Obama's problem, like they removed all cooperation and began strangling the economy. And I I don't know the answer to that. I think in the short term, it is a good sign for the economy that the Democrats seem to want to save the thing as opposed to worsen it, uh, which is what happened in 2009-2010. On the other hand, I do expect something that you began to really hear burbling up uh, this time and I think is going to become the sticking point in three or four months is that if the economy really is in shambles in three or four months and we need much bigger bills to get it moving, the sticking point is going to be the Democrats want to use this period to do Green New Deal, to make a sort of fair economy, to make permanent paid leave. Republicans are already attacking them over that, saying it's ridiculous. You shouldn't use this as a time, as Donald Trump put it, to get your goodies. And so I both think you see the sort of seeds here of a much more not a non-conflictual, but a but a relatively cooperative transactional policymaking process. But also, it is pretty clear to me where and how this is going to begin to break down in a couple of months when more needs to be done. You're sort of rebuilding a, an, an economy in certain respects, and Democrats have priorities for what kind of economy to rebuild that both poll well and are meaningful to them and that Republicans are not going to want to see going forward. Yeah, I mean, this is also where Donald Trump's lack of firm conceptual grounding uh, in conservative uh, ideology may end up making a difference, right? That, you know, Republicans really don't want to raise the minimum wage to $15 an hour as part of, you know, some rolled up uh, economic stimulus thing. Uh, But it does poll well. And there's like always a chance that Democrats could get Donald Trump to agree to something like that. The the fear that, you know, elite conservatives have had about Trump from day one, like the fear that I have had about Donald Trump from day one is that he would ignore expert warnings about pandemic disease, unleash a massive global catastrophe and like kill millions of people. Uh, But the fear elite conservatives have had about Donald Trump from day one is that he doesn't really know about or agree with the free market critique of minimum wage increases. And if the political circumstances make it seem like it would be advantageous to him to just say yes to something like that, he'll just go do it. Right. That like he doesn't he's not going to like fight the good fight for for free markets. Um, And that's a concern that we're going to see in terms of like, what are the information channels leading into the White House? And there's going to be a lot of concern among Democrats that, you know, a lot of people, economists, even ones putting out really scary numbers about Q2, are assuming we'll have a strong bounce back in, in the third quarter. And, you know, Democrats who feel that this is largely been a botched situation on the part of the Trump administration are going to have some doubts about providing a like economic springboard that launches him into re-election. Uh, I, I keep meeting people who I know socially, and they're like shocked and appalled to hear this, but Trump's approval numbers are going up as a result of like he's being on television, like talking about this stuff. People are, to an extent, rallying around the flag. I mean, there's a lot you can say about the the sort of ins and outs and, and details of, of the polling, but it's at least conceivable that he will ride an economic recovery to victory. Um, and, you know, I, I don't know, like, I'm, I'm on team, let's have the economy recover, but... I have a... I got a, I got a lot to say here. So one, I really wish people would just <laughs> stop looking at polls for a minute, because two things... Number one, pulls aside and just do the right thing. 
No, I don't even mean that. You can you can keep the polls in mind if you want, but like look at polls in three months. Okay. Like right now, we are in the before time still. Like we are watching coronavirus cases rise. We but we are, you know, we have a fair amount of shelter in place um policies being enacted across the country. But Either the epidemiologists are right that in two or three months we're going to have like an unbelievable catastrophe on our hands or they're wrong. Um, either the forecasters are right that the economy is going to like collapse or they're wrong. But people will make their decisions about leadership when they are living in the world that the policymakers and by the way, the media are currently responding to. The thing happening at policy and media levels right now is we are trying to report on something that is still yet to come. And it's starting to come, right? We talked about the economic data that is really beginning now. But I I just, I, I think this is like, we have seen this a million times before. There is, even in natural disasters, a temporary rally around the flag effect. And then over time, if crises last, people get really upset. So if I were advising Donald Trump, I would be telling him again and again and again and again, like, think about what is going to make the country good in six weeks. And if like things look pretty good in six weeks, you're going to be okay. But if they don't, the fact that he's at whatever it was, there was one Gallup poll with him at like an amazing 49%, like it's not going to do you any good. Like, cause in six, 10 weeks when 5,000 people a day are dying and the economy is in terrible shape, I just, I really want people to put down the polling conversation because we have like, it will reflect reality, but we are not living like we are on an exponential curve. We are not living in, in the aftermath yet. But the second thing that I think is important there is that, look, I don't think that what Democrats are going to do is sit down and say, like, we want to crash the economy to, to help Joe Biden get elected. What I think they will do is, and the way this ends up working, is that they will convince themselves, correctly or incorrectly, that they have very different priorities for like how to do an economic rebuilding. Like Republicans convince themselves, again, cynically or non-cynically, that like they didn't believe in economic stimulus, which is clearly not true, because like look how they're acting now. Um, Democrats really do believe in things like the Green New Deal or minimum wage laws or unions, et cetera. And so the, the divisions are going to come there. But the other thing that I wonder about, uh, I've been talking to a lot of economists about how do you think about the sizing of this thing? So in a way, when you have this very big collapse happening, and it was more advanced than we are right now in the in, in the crisis, they passed what? There was like a $770 billion stimulus was the first round. It was about $800 billion. Yeah. Um, this thing was coming up on $2 trillion. Now, how you size it is a little weird because as you were saying, a bunch of this is loan programs. You expect some of that to get paid back, but there's also a way to like expand them. It really depends on how much money actually goes out the door. So it is either possible these loan programs could be certainly on the big business or municipal loan program. That could be bigger than we think it is, or it could be much smaller as happened to some of the housing programs under the Obama administration. And it just isn't clear to me like how much money this is really going to put into the economy or how quickly. Two trillion sounds like a lot. It might be significantly less than that. And it might be a lot bigger of an economic hole that you have to fill in a weirder situation. So I'm just I'm curious how you think of we could talk about the details, but how do you think about sufficiency here? Well, let, let's take a break so we can keep the the podcasting economy flowing uh, and then and then talk about about size. Support for The Weeds comes from Not Another Politics Podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. With the constant news cycle, there's a lot of noise out there. Opinions are plastered all over social media, pundits are throwing out hot takes without any sort of context, and it's only getting worse as we dive farther into election season. We know that if you're listening to us at The Weeds, you're looking to cut through all this. And if you like this show... 
you might like Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast is produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. They want to take a research and data approach to analyzing hot-button issues and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but a few recent episodes that you can listen to include a deep dive into why women are underrepresented in U.S. politics or whether or not we can believe political surveys. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. Your body is your own. That's why Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Today, lawmakers who oppose abortion are challenging Planned Parenthood. Affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. Planned Parenthood believes that health care is a basic human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies. They also work tirelessly to oppose the onslaught of new policies aimed at interfering with personal decisions best left to patients and their doctors. They won't give up and they won't back down. You can join Planned Parenthood in the fight to help make sure that the next generation can decide their own futures. The organization needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. I've sort of become convinced in the years between now and, and the Great Recession that it's a really good idea to look at financial market indicators uh, that, you know, it's totally true that the stock market is not the economy, but the stock market, like in conjunction with the commodity markets and the bond market and the 10-year tips inflation break-even spread, like there's, there's a lot of information out there about what's going on. And what you saw once it became clear that this stimulus was going to happen is that the stock market rebounded. But not that much. You saw that the uh, interest rates on government bonds, nominal interest rates, remained super duper low, uh, I think in part thanks to some stuff the Fed said. And you saw that inflation expectations bounced up from from zero, uh, but still to lower than they're supposed to be. And that's a sign, right? Like, I don't have a, a spreadsheet model that, like, tells me how big the stimulus should be. The financial markets are saying that what they did here was not enough to fill the hole, and they should do more if they have plausible candidates for doing more. The most obvious candidates, like if you just look at what's already been done, are shovel money at state and local governments so that they can deal with all the lost tax revenue that they're experiencing here and put more money into those handouts to households. Um Worst comes to worst with money to households, it's like, quote unquote, wasted and, you know, people don't spend it or it turns out to be useless. It goes to some people who don't need it. But you like look at all that stuff and you're like, well, how bad is this on the downside? It seems really unimportant, right? Uh, because interest rates are super duper duper low. Now, if they start to go up, you may have a harder choice, right, where you really do want to help people, but you don't want to waste money that we don't need. I, I also thought President Trump's original idea was that we should do this huge payroll tax cut. And people talked him out of that uh, on the grounds that it's not um, 
not a very strong cost-benefit move, uh, which I think is true. But there are two things that are good about payroll tax cut. One is that the administrative implementation is incredibly simple, uh, which is not the case with most more creative things that you can do. And the other is that you can sort of leave it in place for a long time. And depending on how you write it, you can say like, well, uh, the tax is just going to go back up if interest rates on government debt kind of go up. So I would... Now that we're not talking about, you know, is a payroll tax cut going to crowd out help for unemployed people, but just are there more things we can do? I think it would be a reasonable idea to sort of start that conversation again. I mean, here I'm talking my own book a little bit, but I am somebody who has not lost my job due to coronavirus. Sitting at home, I'm doing okay. But I'm thinking about stuff like uh, Apple just put out a new uh, iPad Pro that looks really cool. And I was thinking like, oh, maybe I should go buy one. Like I'm spending way less money on uh, like eating lunch out every day at the office. So like I should do something. But then I thought about it and I was like, I don't know, man. Like things look a little a little scary out there. And I don't know. I don't need a new iPad Pro, right? All I really need is my giant bag of rice and my many cans of beans. <laughs> So, you know, I'm just like, I'm hunkering down, which I think is like a natural psychological reaction to a kind of disturbing situation. Uh, But the government should be trying to get people to engage in the spheres of the economy that aren't shut down. And something like a tax cut, now that we've taken care of unemployed people, is a good way to like actually prevent secondary and tertiary kind of collapse from coming down on everyone. This is one of the ways in which I think you have to think of what's coming here as sequenced, which is to go back to what you're saying a minute ago. There's this really important question in the forecasting of are we going to have a V-shaped recession? So you have this really sharp Q2 drop. And then as a lot of forecasters are assuming a Q3, Q4 bounce back. Or are we going to have another of these like Nike swoops where you have this very sharp drop and then a very slow um, uh, recovery, which is what we had after the financial crisis? And First up, like it's really important to say that is first and foremost an epidemiological question. Like I, I, I talked to Zandi and, and others about this, and he was saying that in their forecasting, like they are building in a virus peak in May, right? So like we get this under control in May. Now, when I talk to the epidemiologists, like they don't seem to think we're going to get this under control in May. And then when I listen to Donald Trump, and he says he wants to put the country back in church pews in. April, April, right? He yeah. wants us back to back to normal by Easter. Like that sounds to me like we are going to accelerate the virus in April. And so, like even right now, we're on this vertical line going up. The cases happening today will not show up for two to three weeks in terms of like hospital and confirmed case data. So like there's a huge lag here. And if you assume that we don't get control of this until like the summer or worse, like then we're not going to have this bounce back. And if we don't have that bounce back and you got to keep doing these social distancing measures and and so on, like we're in real trouble uh, economically. And so just one thing that I, in terms of Congress leaving, but also just in terms of administration policy, like we can talk about, I'm for things like payroll tax cuts. We're going to need a lot of ideas for demand side stimulus, but first you need to make economic demand easier and like rid like Matt Iglesias and others of this hunkering down mentality. Like people, it has to actually be possible in cities to go look at houses before people are going to buy houses, no matter how low interest rates are. Like house buying is really important. And if you're not supposed to be near any other human beings, you can't go around with a realtor looking at different houses all day. And so you got to get this thing under control in a way that 
right now, Trump and others are setting up like an economy or your life choice in their rhetoric, right? Is the cure worse than the disease? And it is exactly the opposite. Like you got to get the disease under control to get the economy back up and running. Yeah. I mean, I, I agree with that. The other thing I would say is slight dissonance between my conversations with macroeconomic modelers and my conversation with epidemiologists is that the modelers seem to have, they are aware that they are uncertain of like when the economy can come back on. But at least the two that I've spoken to both seem to be assuming that there's going to be a, like a flipping of a switch, right? And it's like, it's going to come back. And that might be in Q3, or maybe it'll be in Q4. The epidemiologists who I've spoken to, they seem to be envisioning much more of like a slow roll, right? That if we get the virus under control, you will have a situation in which you having tested clear and your realtor also having tested clear can in fact go look at houses as two of you in a thing, but in which the government is still going to be saying, like, let's not have 20,000 people gather in an NBA arena, right? And in which they're at least going to be asking companies to think about, like, do you really need to go to that trade show? And, you know, there are real questions about the travel, hotel, casino, sports, movie theaters, you know, these kind of things that are not not as drastic as your neighborhood gym is closed. But like the United States of America is not a subsistence economy. There's all kinds of stuff that like we can get along perfectly fine. You know, if you said no American can ever go to a movie theater again, like I would be incredibly bummed out because I love the movies, but it's not like people would die. So you could imagine parts of the economy staying shut down for quite a long time simply because the the risk reward ratio there is is very, very low. Right. Whereas like, OK, can you have a plumber come over to your house? You know, that's it's really important to get pipes fixed. People need to be able to do something. So I haven't seen. um people sort of modeling through the consequences of a year's worth of semi-restricted activity, where we're no longer in panic mode about viral spread, but we don't have a vaccine. And, you know, there's a lot of pressure to sort of avoid unnecessary risk, which, you know, that's, that's going to be tough because you can't keep bailing out like the hotel industry indefinitely, I think. Politically, it's it's not going to be sustainable, but that's still a lot of jobs and things. And I, I don't think that we've begun to really think about what is like coming next. What do we do in May? What do we do in June? That's a good setup for our white papers. So should we maybe take a break and move to that? Absolutely. Let's take a break. Talk about the paper. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. As a parent, you want your child to have every opportunity. But giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge, that takes a team. Now more than ever, educational support tailored exactly to what your child needs can make all the difference. That's why parents have trusted Sylvan Learning for 45 years as the ultimate teammate in their child's educational journey, instilling in them a love for learning and a passion for reaching the next level. And Sylvan's Insight Assessment can identify gaps in learning and areas that could be of concern for your child. It's a 360-degree view into your child's learning that you can't find anywhere else and helps ensure that your child didn't miss something in school that might put them at a disadvantage in the future. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. 
Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. So I caught wind of this paper over on Jason Furman, uh, the former Obama chief economist Twitter feed, and he says the most important economic research released today. And that's because it turns out to be incredibly, incredibly relevant to a conversation that is being had about this. Is a cure worse than the disease? So the paper is by Sergio Correa, Stefan Luck, and Emil Verner, and it's called Pandemics Depress the Economy, Public Health Interventions Do Not, colon, Evidence from the 1918 Flu. So what they did here was they looked at the benefits of so-called non, non-pharmaceutical interventions, which is very much the kinds of things that we're dealing with here. You know, you close schools, you limit public gatherings, social distancing, basically. But they're looking at during the 1918 flu, and so they're using geographic variation in mortality and then manufacturing data and a couple other things to try to figure out, well, what happened? What happened in the places that responded more aggressively? And was there an effect on the economy? Was there an effect on public health. And to just quote their conclusion, we find that cities that intervened earlier and more aggressively do not perform worse and, if anything, grow faster after the pandemic is over. Our findings thus indicate that non-pharmaceutical interventions not only lower mortality, they also mitigate the adverse economic consequences of a pandemic. And so what they're really saying here is if you look at 1918, which is probably the most comparable thing we have on record, you do not see this choice that is being proposed by particularly a lot of conservative politicians of well, maybe we should keep calm and carry on and just let the disease get worse and more people will die. But on the other hand, the economy will be better. Um, what you see here is that for various reasons, if you do that, you actually don't have a better economy. On the other side, you have a worse economy. So if you want to uh, intervene strongly early, keep the disease from getting too bad, like deal with the economic shutdown, but then you can have more of that, more of that bounce back on the other side. Yeah. The one, I mean, I, I sort of like the conclusion of this paper, so I, I don't want to question it too harshly. Uh, but the one cautionary note I have is that the the structure of the American economy has changed a lot since 1918, right? So if you imagine an economy in which, like, roughly speaking, what the typical person does is they work in a factory, and then a typical sort of like mass gathering is they go to church on Sunday. Then just say, okay, you tell people don't go to church on Sunday, and it makes it less likely that they'll get sick, and therefore they can show up to the factory. So output goes up because of the non-pharmaceutical interventions. Modern economy, where what most people are doing is providing face-to-face services to each other, it's like by closing the restaurants, you may be keeping the factories open because people aren't getting sick, but like so few people work in the factories compared to the number of people who work in the in the restaurants, that it's not 100% obvious to me that the balance goes exactly the same way. It depends to an extent on, can you reopen, right? Like, are we talking about a month to six weeks of severe precaution, and then you get back to it? Or are you really talking about for the whole duration, we need to shut down 
the service sector, just because that's such an enormous part of what what it is we do. I mean, as far as I know, at the moment, America's like export oriented uh, making of things is not that hampered, except to the extent that that demand has collapsed. But it's like we, we have a terrible shortage of, uh, you know, surgical masks and N95 respirators. But that's not because like the factories have been shut down. They just can only make so many at a time. But like the the assembly lines are still running and the economy is collapsing because the service sector is collapsing, which I don't I don't think characterizes. Yeah, and it, the, it is worth saying there are a lot economies. of caveats like that. I mean, the data here is a little bit spotty and also something that is really important is a 1918 flu was very different than COVID-19 in in a very specifically economically important way, which is that it hit working age adults hardest. The way that flu worked, it was very deadly for people in their 20s and 30s, whereas like the idea here is you can kind of wall off the, the, the seniors. It doesn't seem to hit younger people nearly as hard as it does older people. So like there's a lot to, to think about there, but, but I would say at a big level, um, it at least complicates this idea that there is this clear your money or your life trade-off, which I think has become very dangerous and very damaging as a kind of meme um, that is infecting some of our senior political leaders who can feel the economic and political pain of social distancing now, but are having trouble like forecasting themselves forward into the political, human, moral, economic pain of mass deaths plus a totally disastrous economy. Yeah, I mean, I, I just want to say on that, I mean, I, I think the idea that so people have started getting into a lot of contrarianism about what's the real case for fatality right here, which I think is besides the point, right? That if you look at uh, Wuhan and Hubei province, if you look at New York City right now, if you look at Lombardy in Italy, if you look at Madrid, clearly the virus is severe enough that if left unchecked, the demand of respirators far outstrips the actual supply. And doctors need to start saying that older patients just can't get treatment because they, they need to triage it. And you have more uh, qualies out of giving, giving the ventilators to, to middle-aged people. And then the death rate soars because if you don't treat the elderly patients, they die. Every single place that has started to have that experience has adopted a lockdown reaction. It is obviously possible in theory to not do that. You could look at a situation where your hospital administrators are telling you all patients over 65 are going to be left to die untreated. And then as some doctors get sick, you have to start rolling that down. And now the like kill point goes down to 60, goes down to 55. Like you could do that. But nobody is going to do that. You know, like, you should, like, you got to think that through as a political official, right? Like, if you are not willing to bear that kind of pain, not just people dying, but people dying untreated because your system has been overwhelmed, you got to head it off now. Right. The absolute worst thing we could do is have more states decide like, oh, this isn't that big of a deal. We don't want to bear the economic pain. You let it get out of control and then you get frightened and you and and you clamp down. I mean, that's what they did in Milan. That's what they did in Madrid. That's what it, it seems like has happened in New York. And, and that's really terrible. Like, I, I don't believe that there was a single political leader in the world who would follow through on the implications of what the contrarians are saying they believe. And there are certain things in life where it's like, 
you really got to gut check yourself, like, because there are no benefits to going down that road unless you genuinely follow through on it. And I just don't, no, nobody's going to follow through on that. Like, it's too crazy. It's the human mind revolts at the idea of allowing people to die untreated of treatable disease. And and I'll just say as a as a final plug here, I just did an episode of the Ezra Klein show with Jason Furman on the economic logic of this argument, this your money, your life argument. Um, and then with uh Ruth Faden, who's a bioethicist on the the kind of moral frameworks for thinking about these choices, which if you wanna kind of hear this talk through, uh I, I recommend both of those interviews. Yeah. Um so I don't know. I, I, I guess that's about what I have to say of that. Um, <laughs> you know, we'll, we'll have to see what happens. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think once you accept that you are not going to allow your healthcare system to become totally swamped voluntarily, then there's no economic trade-off. It's yes. like you have to handle it. Uh, something else I would note is that I saw a more detailed kind of interview with uh, Richard Epstein, um, who is the conservative legal scholar who seems to be powering a, a fair amount of this contrarianism. And it turns out that in addition to his, um, to be kind, I'll say idiosyncratic opinions about epidemiology. And he, total lack of qualifications yes, um, for these idiosyncratic epidemiological is, opinions. I mean, for, for a commentator on the trade-off between public health and economics, he is an expert in neither of those fields. Uh, but critically, he takes the view that fiscal stimulus measures and sort of emergency debt relief and all that other kind of stuff, that those steps are economically ruinous right? Like over and above the cost of shutdown. And so if you put that kind of high priority, not just on like avoiding economic pain, but avoiding economic relief, then maybe you can make some kind of sense out of this. But that's a very, you're like piling a lot of weird ideological ideas on top of each other. All right. I think that's where we should leave it today. Um, but thank you to our steadfast uh, engineer, Jeff, the proverbial chef. Um, thank you, of course, to Matt Iglesias. Um, the Weeds is a Vox Media podcast production, and we'll be back on Tuesday. Tuesday, Wednesday. Yep, <laughs> Tuesday. Back on Tuesday. We're all we're all dealing with that with some disruptions here, uh, but we will see you all then. Thanks, guys. <laughs> <laughs>